It is your money. I'm Susie Jones, and we are happy to have you with us. If you have a financial question at any time, you can call this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is one eight 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 six advice You can also email your questions to your money at wealth enhancement at I'll say it again. I'll slow down. Your money at wealthenhancement.com. But for the next hour, you can call our studio line, 651-461-9226. Here is the founder of the Wealth Enhancement Group and financial advisor, Bruce Helmer, and senior vice president and financial advisor, Peg Webb. Hello to both of you. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Bruce. Hi, Peg. Hi, Susie. It's good to be with you both. It's been a while. I was gone last week, Peg and Susie, you were gone the week before that. So the three of us, uh, the three amigos together again. Hey, uh, ladies, I have to go back two weeks ago when you weren't with me uh, and correct a mistake that I made. Uh, There was a question on the show. uh, Someone asked if when you do a Roth conversion, if you can take part of the conversion dollars and use that to pay the taxes. And I answered that you can't. Peg, I don't know if you ever do this, but even as I was answering, there was a little voice in my head going, I'm not sure if this is right or not, but I, but I plowed ahead and I finished my answer, and I was thinking about it and kind of agonizing over it even after the show ended. And then I got a text from our, uh, our fantastic advisor, uh, tax guy in Mankato, Minnesota, Ryan McEwen, and Ryan texted and he said, you actually can do it. It's not that it's illegal. It's just a really, really bad idea. It's like a Minnesota, I think Ryan equated it to a Minnesota ice storm. So the reason I thought you couldn't do it is I don't think I ever have. And if you actually have to use the money from the conversion to pay the tax, if you don't have any extra money on your own to pay the tax, you probably shouldn't be doing the conversion. In any event, for accuracy, for clarity, it's been bugging me for two weeks. I wanted to go back and, uh, and correct that. But good. Today, I'm glad. Yeah. No, thank you. Today, and this, I'm really actually excited about the topic. Today, we're going to talk about things that we talk about all the time, but we don't necessarily combine them all into one show. We're going to talk about investing, and we talk it. We call the show Investing 101. And I think oftentimes all of us that are in the industry, myself included, are guilty of assuming that the audience knows things that we know we make references to things as though it's common knowledge and to a lot of people some of these things might not be common knowledge so we're going to go back to the very basics identify what we're talking about when we use certain terms and and certain concepts and just talk about the very very basics of how people should invest like a beginner's course for investing I, I actually, I love this too. I said, oh, this is going to be easy. Well, then I looked at the outline and I mean, to go back to like the basic basics, sometimes you're right. Uh, what we do uh, for a living and coaching clients all day long, sometimes we do forget about the basics. So I, I also like this uh, outline. One of the things that I think we um, start with is just because these are the basics of investing and, you know, you um, you simply, when you think about the word invest, right, you're taking some of your money and you're investing in something. Well, what's the reason for that? Well, because, you know, you, you hear on the news, you, you uh, probably have heard on the Internet 
that investing is uh, the be-all, end-all of being able to retire one day. I, st- I still think that's kind of the theme of why people invest because they're looking a little bit more forward, you know, um, because while you're earning a paycheck, that's great. But I think we're all aware that we just can't work till the last day of our life. I guess some people do, but it's just not common. So I thought what we would do is um, even just define a portfolio because you hear this word portfolio, portfolio, what does that mean? Well, Super simple. It's just a collection of different investments. So it could be a stock. It could be a bond. It could be, we have all this terminology, Bruce. We got mutual funds. We got exchange traded funds. It could be a portfolio is just something that you build, you know, and and, uh, more times than not, it's for a purpose. And so I thought we would start, uh, start with just stocks. And the basics of stocks are that if you invest in a stock, technically it's a share, uh, like an ownership of a company. And to simplify it, they have units of stock, um, you know, a number of, of that stock. Because, you know, as the companies earn more money, or um, they lose money, I think a lot of listeners are familiar with this, the value of that stock can fluctuate. So there's actually a a value um, created, and then it can go up and down from there. Then corporations can actually choose, well, they don't all get to choose, but some are on the big exchanges, like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, the National Association of Securities Exchanges, if you're on an exchange, then that stated value that they created within their corporation can go up or down based on the supply of demand. So a lot of us know that when we're watching the stock market, why is one day like, oh my gosh, it's all up and another day it's all down? Well, that's actually the people out there that are buying and selling that particular stock are driving that price price up or they're driving it um, back down. So, Bruce, those are just kind of some of the general basics. Yeah, I just want to circle back on a couple things, Peg, before we plow forward. Um, you, I, I like that you started out talking about, you know, what is the purpose of investing? What is the goal? And to some extent, that's unique to each individual. Just like I always say, we're all different. We're all snowflakes. But at the end of the day, what I come back to with people, Peg, is I I do help them quantify a goal. And and for most people, it's to put away money for their future so that when they don't work anymore, they can draw down on these savings and investments and replace their paycheck and enjoy a certain lifestyle. But but I find, and I don't know if you do, I find that if you ask people kind of what what are you trying to accomplish, they don't say that. And I have to kind of help them realize that's what they really want. Well, the answer I get a lot is, well, I want to get the best rate, rate of return I can. And I will, I will challenge people and I will say, really, is that your goal? Because to try to get the highest rate of return you can might mean that you're taking on more risk than you want to take. Might I suggest that the goal or the purpose or the, or the, the motivation of why we're investing is to accumulate enough money so that we can retire someday and live the lifestyle that we want and never run out of money. 
and we can we can we can do forecasting and determine what the return on investment is that you need to achieve that. And then our my goal as an advisor is to achieve that rate of return with the least amount of risk possible. So I think a lot of people, Peg, look at us and say, oh, you always want to put everybody in the stock market. But I sometimes coach people to have less in the stock market because if they don't need a very high rate of return to get where they want to be, why would we take risks that they don't need to get a return that they don't need? So stocks where you started correctly, appropriately, is going to be a part of most people's portfolios, but how much it should be is going to be a function of time horizon, needed rate of return, risk tolerance, and all kinds of of other things. And then the other thing I just wanted to throw in really quickly, and I'm guilty of this too, that's why I wanted to say it. When we talk about stocks, we always talk about these, you know, arbitrary numbers. The Dow is at X and and the S&P is at Y. And, And I think sometimes we lose sight and I'm glad you said it, it's ownership. We're investing in companies. And if we pick smart, innovative, efficient, well-run companies, they're going to go up in value over time. That's what we're buying. We're buying little pieces of hopefully really good companies that appreciate value. That's what a stock is. Peg? Yeah, I like that you said that because I get the question a lot, too, of um, – you know, why are we investing in them? Why? I just don't feel like it's it's so far from tangible, right? So pe- some people are like, I just, I, I just can't do it. But when you think about um, the stock market, it, it is a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an entity kind of in itself. And you, you, you need to participate because, well, I mean, historically, it's been a great place to be. We don't know about the future, but it's been a great place to, you know, keep up with inflation. And, um, and you know, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to get into some of the other terms, like let me jump into bonds. So believe it or not, bonds are so confusing to people, but yet it's easier than stocks. Believe it, it's easier than stocks because a bond is basically – If you borrowed money to a corporation, they're just saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take your investment and then we'll pay you an interest rate and then we'll give you a maturity date and give you your money back. That's as simple as bonds are. Now, they can be issued by the government. Everybody's heard now about treasuries because treasuries have a very attractive rate. Um, Corporations. Just like we were talking about stocks with corporations, they could decide, no, we don't want to have equity. We want to have fixed income that we offer our investors. And so it could be corporations. Now, I mentioned treasuries, but municipalities. So, you know, in the state of Minnesota, they come out with bonds and usually they're municipal tax free. And all they're saying is to the public, Do you want to invest in your state? Do you want to invest in an essential purpose of something that the state of Minnesota is doing? Once again, they'll pay an interest rate and they'll give you a maturity date uh, of when you should get your principal back. Where it starts to get confusing for people is that I just talked about the simplest form. You buy a bond, you buy an individual bond, you hold it, you get this interest and you get your money back. 
provided that the credit of that issuer uh, is still good. Now, where the complexity comes, Bruce, is maybe you want to sell your bond before it matures. You know, um, there's, there's pools of bonds uh, in mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. And so it's similar to stock in that if you want to get rid of it or sell it before it matures, you may get more or less than you paid for it. And that's confusing because there isn't a market like the, you know, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. Well, technically there is, but not as visible for bonds. And so your bonds actually get priced to the market every single day. And clients kind of go, well, wait a minute, I bought this at face value. Why is it worth less than what I paid? But if you hold that bond until maturity, you're going to get your money back provided that the credit is still good. Bruce? Peg, um, you are the smartest person I know on bonds. I always say you're the wealth enhancements resident bond expert. So here's a question I'm kind of asking more for the listeners than for myself. So you have stocks and bonds. Is it safe to say, is it correct, that bonds are safer than stocks, quote, unquote, safer? And, and, and if so, why is that true? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, it, it, it goes back to um, a couple examples that I gave. So if, it, if it's a U.S. Treasury backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S., now some people listening might be saying, hey, you know, um, I don't know how valuable that is today with all the debt that we have, but it is. The U.S. Treasury is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States municipalities, you know, they um, give the credit behind those cities because they raise taxes, you know, to pay your interest. Where the problem lies is you can buy risky bonds. You can buy in companies that are not the top tier large companies of the United States. They might be a small company that issues bonds. So you have to be careful about the credit. Um, same thing with stocks. You know, you have to do your homework and, and know if that company is a strong company or is it a startup company? Um, and when we uh, offer, you know, stocks and bonds, we have to go through that risk and educate. We forgot to say this. Education is everything. Like we're doing investing 101, but just education of the basics is important. And we take our time in the meetings to educate people, especially on bonds, because they're actually more, they're popular today because interest rates are higher. No one, not a lot of people were interested in them, you know, when they were uh, so low, close to zero. Now people have uh, interest in them again. So uh, just to summarize quick, stock is ownership, bond is debt or bond is a loan, bonds offer a dividend or an interest or a coupon rate, are arguably safer, but Peg, sometimes investors shouldn't put money in stocks or in bonds. Um, and then sometimes, or a lot of times, you don't just go out and buy individual stocks and bonds, you buy investments that can combine all kinds of stocks and bonds. So talk about when we don't want stocks and bonds and how we can get a whole lot of them in one investment. Uh, well, um, mutual funds. So mutual funds became popular um, oh so long. I mean, I'm talking about decades ago because 
if you buy an individual stock or you buy an individual bond, you're taking more risk than, let's say, buying 10 different stocks and 10 different bonds. Well, our industry um, wanted to be able to have the masses be able to invest for their future. So a mutual fund has a mix of these portfolios in their um, defined strategy. So you can buy stock mutual funds, which just means that there's going to be lots of different stocks in there. So you have instant diversification with a small amount of money. And so we call people retail investors, meaning those are the masses, people who want to participate but don't necessarily have enough to have a well-diversified portfolio. And so the benefits of mutual funds in which, which people loved is that you had a professional manager, like somebody who was sitting behind a desk that was able to pick you know, the, the stocks that would go into this mutual fund. Um, there's also a broad diversification, but now you can buy mutual funds that have, you know, indexes of stocks. So Bruce, you already mentioned the S&P 500. If you want to own 500 stocks, you know, in one trade, that's something where you can buy the S&P 500 index and be well diversified. So they've been around a long time, Bruce, and I think they have a great place uh, because I think it, it actually, you know, the numbers of people that were able to participate in this stock investing, um, they, it, it just, it was an evolution is what it was, Bruce. So uh, a couple things, Peg, for, for listeners that, again, to try to give clarity, your, your experience with or your exposure to mutual funds might be, in fact, probably is the investment choices in your company 401k plan. Those are generally going to be mutual funds. Not that you can't get individual stock. You can. In fact, you, you might even be able to get stock in the company that you work for in your retirement plan. But most of the time, the, the investment choices on your retirement plan are going to be funds. And so for a lot of you, that might be your only exposure to funds. And the other thing I wanted to point out, Peg, also is that you know, whether it's individual stocks and individual bonds or, or funds, there is an element of risk of principle on all those investments. In the short term, they can retract or go down in value. And sometimes we want money with no risk of principle. If it's money that we think we're going to need or we know we're going to need in the next couple of years, we probably don't want to take any risk with that money. We want to have money markets or bank accounts or bank CDs get the highest interest rate we can with no risk of principal, but at the same time, we don't want to do that with all of our money because long-term, those safe investments are probably not going to give us the same uh, rates of return on investment as stocks and bonds and funds. This gets into what you and I do frequently on the show, the Your Money Matrix and, and, and short-term money. So we got a couple minutes left, Peg. Uh, what else do we want to hit before we go to break? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about alternatives also, which now now we're getting into something that's even more complex. This particular subset of investments is not 100% liquid all the time, but it also helps um, to offset maybe a risk of bond and interest rates and the stock market, what it's doing 
it, it's a non-correlated asset. So let me just give you an example, natural resources. So commodities like oil and gas and minerals, things like that, or direct real estate or um, you know, real assets like airports, power plants. Um, the way I describe it to my clients is, is um, you're gonna laugh at this, but Nicole Webb, my daughter who works on our team, she had a great analogy, and I still use it today. It's like bumpers on a bowling alley. So if you've got the ball going down and you have the bumpers, it hits the side, but it never goes into the gutter. And so these, these uh, alternatives are something that, that work in that way in a portfolio. Bruce? Yeah, I love that. I'm going to steal that from Nicole also. That's great. So, Susie, I know we're about due for a break. When we come back, Peg and I will finish our discussion on Investing 101, and we'd love to get listeners involved in the second half of the show also. That sounds great. 651-461-9226. If you are listening and you have a question about investing, stocks, bonds, the entire thing, the whole shoot and match, 651-461-9226. It is your money. I'm Susie Jones. We have Bruce Helmer and Peg Webb on the line to take your questions for the next half hour at 651-461-9226. Welcome back, both of you. We're talking about Investing 101, the class. No, I'm kidding, but go ahead, you guys. You were, want to wrap up before we get to some questions from our textures at 651-461-9226. Yeah, thank you, Susie Jones. Thank you, listeners, for hanging in there. And uh, Yeah, again, uh, a text and or calls. We'd love to get to as many questions as we can this half of the show. Quick recap, if you joined us late, as Susie mentioned, we're talking about Investing 101. So we talked about the goal or the purpose of why we're investing in the first place. What are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to achieve? We talked about stocks, which is ownership in companies. If those companies appreciate or go up in value, your, your shares of stock go up in value and you make money. But stocks have an element of risk. The, the share price of that company can go down as well as go up. History tells us that over a long period of time, if you buy good stocks, they're, more, they're going to go up more often than they go down, and you're going to, over a long period of time, historically, be rewarded as an investor. We talked about bonds. Bonds is really a loan or a debt instrument. You're loaning a government or a municipality or a company money, and they promise to pay you back a predetermined interest rate for the use of that money. Um, we talked about sometimes you should not invest in stocks and bonds, if it's money that you're going to need in the short term, you want uh, safety, no risk of principal. Then we talked about rather than just going out and buying individual stocks and individual bonds, you can get a lot of companies, a lot of stocks, a lot of bonds in a, in a vehicle in a strategy called a mutual fund. Finally, went to alternative investments. And Peg, you said something I just want to get clarity on. You talked about non-correlated. So for, for listeners that don't know, Stocks and bonds are correlated in the, from the standpoint that most of the time, although not all the time, but most of the time, stocks and bonds are negatively correlated, that if stocks do well, bonds do poorly, and if bonds do well, stocks do poorly, but there can be exceptions to that. 2022 was just such a year, stocks and bonds both did poorly in 2022, but alternative asset classes like gold and silver and other precious metals 
or real estate um, or commodities, those aren't correlated to stocks and bonds. Those tend to be not correlated to any other asset class. So it adds to the diversification. In addition to stocks and bonds, we get some of these alternatives or alts. I love, I love Nicole's analogy of putting bumpers up so your bowling ball can't go in the gutter. That's what we try to do with alternative investments. And Peg, now to wrap all this up, I'm going to throw it back to you. What it ultimately gets back to then is how do you create a mixture of all these things? Um, what's, what's appropriate? And, and, and I'm going to use the word that everybody knows, diversification. How do we diversify properly? What do we call that? What does that mean? Peg? Yeah, another term for diversification is asset allocation that's used in our um, space. And it's basically saying don't have all your eggs in one basket. And what we mean by that is, well, okay, so now I understand I should have a lot of eggs, but what percentage of what should I own? And it's interesting, Bruce, because um, the, there was a, and I don't know if it's used so much today, but it was to take your age and subtracted from age 100. Well, now they actually, it's called the rule of 110 instead of 100. So I kind of smiled at that when that changed because quite frankly, we're all living longer. Uh, and so in that rule, they're just saying subtract your age from 110 and that's how many stocks you should own or what percentage. And I still throw that out the window. Um, it's maybe a great guide but in, in, in my experience of decades of time is I would follow the Bruce Helmer, what he said in the beginning, everybody's an individual snowflake. First, you need to know what's important to you and what your goals are and all of that. Then you back into what the allocation should be or the asset allocation, because we hold uh, this saying, don't take more risk than you have to. And I can't believe, Bruce, how many clients or even prospective clients when they come visit us for the first time, they just assume that we're all going to try them to, to get them to do more, to invest more in stocks, you know, the riskier things. And that is just not so. So diversification and asset allocation, um, just generally, Bruce, is the stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, alternatives, and then what percentage of what should you own and that actually changes. So one of the, um, I'd say, advantages of working with a company like ours and companies in our space is we actively manage the portfolio. So we're, we're as a whole, you know, suggesting to clients, first, it's our job as advisors, stocks, bonds, real estate, or cash, or alternatives, what percentages, what you should own. But then inside those asset classes, if you will, you know, Wealth Enhancer Group has an investment team that helps us. Well, this is what we should be owning today. Um, and it's all about diversification and having more eyes on the portfolio than just people who may tend to do it themselves. Bruce? Yeah, and I'll just, the only thing I'll add is with regard to asset allocation, efficient asset allocation, and proper diversification, you're right. And and, and I'm gonna, I want to really focus on what you just said. It changes. So, Let's say you're somebody that determines that the right asset allocation for you is 70% of your money in stocks and 30% in bonds and cash and alternatives and things other than stocks. But over a period of time, stocks do, the stocks in your portfolio do really well 
and the other investments don't do as well, and you look and you say, well, wait a minute, 75% of my money now is in stocks and 25% is in other stuff, but you determine that the asset allocation that you want that's appropriate or efficient for you is 70-30. Well, now we got to go in there and rebalance and get that back to a 70-30 portfolio. So we sell some stock, and what are we doing? We're probably selling high. If that grew to be 75% from 70, it probably went up in, in value, and now we're selling it and locking in those gains, and we're buying other asset classes probably lower, or they didn't do as well, and we assure that we buy low and sell high. Two weeks ago, Peg, when you weren't here, I actually did a show on strategies being more important than the actual investments that we make, and rebalancing is just one example of a strategy. The other one I used that day, whether we're talking about stocks or bonds or mutual funds or alternatives, what, what if whatever that investment is, I put it inside of a Roth IRA and I leave the money there for at least five years or until age 59 and a half, whichever is longer, and whatever the re return on investment is, I don't have to pay any taxes on the gain. I just improve my return by 25 or 30 percent as opposed to having the same exact investment, but, but I do have to pay taxes. So investing 101, making the right investments matters, but the strategies around how we do this, asset allocation is a strategy. It's not an investment. So we talk about all these things, asset allocation, rebalancing, Roth IRAs, and so forth. And that we put our stocks and bonds, our, our, our investments, whatever we choose to use, in these various strategies. What else, Peg, do you want to hit before we uh, turn the show over to listeners? Well, since you mentioned the show that I missed, um, you can go listen to past shows. And um, there's been a couple topics that have been, been kind of hot topics, I would say. But at wealthenhancement.com backslash your money takes you directly to the radio shows and you can actually play the ones that have been um, done in the past. Make sure that when you go to that website that you scroll down because there's all the shows. Last week we had a show that was a little bit outside the box, but I've, I got a lot of good reviews um, from listeners and it was called the changing world of work where we had our HR uh, leader, Janelle Masson on, talking about just the changes and how, uh, and that's a big topic right now. And then we also had a couple weeks ago, Bruce, when you were gone, you know, are women better investors? So we're bringing on some unique guests recently that I think have, um, we've got a lot of good comments on. So uh, go listen to them. Oh, and a client that I did their review this week said, I love listening afterwards because I'm on the treadmill and they're 43 minute shows. And he said, then I know that I'm done walking. So I thought that was cute. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, all right. Anything else Peg, you wanted to hit or, or should we throw it to Susie and start taking questions? Let's take questions. All right. 651-461-9226. Texter writes, can you explain yield? Interest rates and coupon rates relative to bonds. Peg, you are the right person to ask any question about bonds. Yeah, so it was yield, interest rates, and what else, Susie? Uh, yield, oh, coupons. coupons, yeah. Oh, the coupon, okay. And there's this another good one, too, so 
we'll try to squeeze well, through Well, this it. is interesting because this just happened this past week. So I purchased a treasury bond, an individual bond for a client. And when I was talking to her, I was talking about 5%, let's just say, as a general number. And she went, really, I can get 5%? And this was like a two-year maturity. So when we're talking about a maturity, it just means there's a particular date that it's going to, um, it's going to expire. And so then I talked about the coupon. Um, well, I talked about the yield being five, right? And I talked about the maturity being two years out, but I, I didn't emphasize on that particular phone call the coupon. So then she gets her statement and it says 4.75%. Well, she picked up the phone right away and called me and said, wait a minute, I thought I was getting five. I thought I was getting five. Well, we bought that discount. So each bond uh, is issued at $1,000. And we bought it at $995, let's say. We bought it at a discount. Well, what does that mean? Well, two years from now, if you hold that bond to maturity, you're going to get $1,000 for the bond. Along the way, you're going to get coupons, 4.75. These happen to pay semi-annually. So that cash will come to you, and you can reinvest that in a money market or whatever um, you want. But the yield on her confirmation, and this is where I had to go back and point this out to her, is the actual yield to maturity, to that two-year maturity, was 5.10. So in essence, I got her a better yield than she was anticipating, but I failed to walk through all that terminology with her. Uh, and that would just happen, Bruce, this week. So early in the first half of the show, when you talked about bonds, you said it's actually pretty simple. And, and I agree, but this is where it gets confusing. These different terms and these slightly different rates of return, whether you're talking coupon or yield or whatever, that's obviously what, what confuses people. Peg, I also would like you to comment. Um, so a lot of people have said to me before, and in fact, I have said this to clients or said this in speaking engagements or radio shows, during a rising interest rate environment, bond prices are likely to fall. And the reason for that is, is in, just in the example that you gave, if you've got a bond that's yielding 4% and you bought it for 10 bucks a share, but now there's 5% money out there, nobody's going to give you $10 for a, for a 4% yield if they can spend $10 and get a 5% yield. So if you wanted to sell your bond, you got to sell it for less than 10 That sometimes gets people to believe, well, then I, I don't want to invest in a bond if interest rates are going up right now. But one of the great things about bonds is even if the share price goes down, a, you're not going to sell it right now anyway, probably, and B, the reason you're not is you're earning that interest rate. We usually use bonds in a portfolio not just as a diversifier, but also as a, as a great tool to provide income. A lot of people take the, the interest, in from, uh, in, interest from bonds and they use it to supplement retirement income, right? Yes, and it's, and it's actually a good time to, um, if you don't need the money, to reinvest in bonds. So let's say you have a whole portfolio of bonds already, and we are spending quite a bit of time in our reviews on the term mark to the market. 
And so mark to the market means you just take what is the valuation today if somebody were to buy this bond from you today? Bruce, you hit it on the head in that if interest rates are going up, and I'll be more dramatic, and you have a 2% yielding bond, and today I can get a 4 well, you're not going to get your full value today from that person who wants to buy your bond. They're going to have to buy it at a discount, and I talked about this on that treasury, they're going to have to buy it at a discount to yield them 4% in today's market. Now, what I tell my clients, too, in, in the reviews is if you have a basket of bonds, you know, eventually those bonds are going to mature. And eventually, this is my opinion now, and, and um, that interest rates are probably going to go back down. So when interest rates go back down, I don't know when, but that, then your mark to the market is going to change as well, and it's going to get more favorable. Bruce? Um, that, that's a really good answer. Susie, let's uh, squeeze in another question. All right. A texter wrote earlier on the program asking the question, were IRAs and 401ks introduced because employers stopped offering pensions? Kind of a historical question. Oh, that's, a re- yeah. that's a really good question. Thank you. I'll go first. Well, I happen to be one of those people that that happened to. I mean, um, pensions were, <laughs> were pensions were really popular, you know, in my early career. And all of a sudden they came to you and they gave us a really great sales pitch on the fact that this whole 401k was going to be better than this pension. And technically what it was is really a switch, I think, of the, um, the future for employees. So instead of the company owning that future and creating this pension, don't get me wrong, there's still pensions out there. But more so than not, uh, you probably have a 401k or a 403b it was actually putting that onus on the employee and it was quite sudden, you know, and you, um, and there was a lot of education around, you know, why this was good for you, bad for you. But I would call that another evolution at that time. It was a, it was a dramatic, dramatic shift, Bruce. Yeah. The texture got it exactly right. And so we are seeing, far fewer pensions now than we did, you know, one and two generations ago. The technical term for a pension, and Peg Peg nailed it, everybody, the employer was taking the responsibility of providing you a, um, a benefit. The pension is called a defined benefit plan, and you, in theory, you knew what your benefit was going to be when you retired. The the defined benefit plan has more or less gone away, or there's certainly far fewer of them. They've been replaced by defined contribution plans, the 401Ks, the 403Bs, and now the onus is on the employee to participate in the plan, to put in a portion of their paycheck. They may or may not get a matching contribution from the employer, but you have no idea what your benefit's going to be because your benefit is going to be driven by how much money you put in during your working career, how well you invest, what kind of rate of return you get. So you have no idea when you start a job and start participating in the 401k what your future benefit will be, but you control the contribution and the onus is on you, not your employer. I agree with you, Peg. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's different. There's definitely been an evolution and defined contribution plans for the most part have uh, replaced defined benefit plans. 
I think just a, yeah, just a last comment on that is too. I think on the backside now, we're seeing lost loyalty, you know, for people that are working for companies. There's no reason because a lot of people stayed at a company a very long time because of that pension. And so there's lost loyalty, whether that's a good or bad and, and whether you uh, change jobs your entire career, you know, 10, 20 different jobs. I don't have that answer, but that was a big change too. Susie? Yeah, we have a couple of questions. We'll see. We have about two minutes left. This texter writes, what do you think of an income streaming annuity in a portfolio? Thank you, they say. Uh, Income stream annuity. (laughs) Yes, you can go on this one. (laughs) Okay, so really quickly, and I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, Susie. So an annuity, by definition, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's going to say something to the term of planned periodic payments. That's what an annuity is. If you have a pension plan or a defined benefit plan, in essence, that's an annuity. Uh, Some would argue Social Security is an annuity. So you you put in money and it's invested or put somewhere to hopefully grow and get a return, and then you're going to take that money back out over a period of time. That's, that's the definition of an annuity. Using an annuity as part of an investment portfolio to provide guaranteed income can be a good idea for some people. Some of the disadvantages why people get scared away from annuities, and I think just the word annuity has a negative connotation with a lot of people, and that's unfortunate because it's not always a bad thing, but annuities might have higher costs than other investments, or we call it a higher expense drag. Annuities might limit the investor's liquidity. They usually have a back-end load or a deferred sales charge, but they can provide things like guaranteed income, or they can provide certain uh, other guarantees in terms of rate of return and whatnot. So they're neither good nor bad. It's another tool that we have available that we can use in the uh, in the appropriate circumstances. And Peg, I'd love to give you a chance for the last word, but I think Susie's going to tell us we're running out of time. Yes, I'm sorry to say, you guys, but this is a great opportunity to have folks write this number down, one eight 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 six advice or yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. I'm sure they'll help you out and answer any question you have. Thanks, guys. See you next week. See you next week. Bye, Bruce.